Thanks, band. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 11 this morning. And again, just see the sweetness of the way the Lord lined up our text with our celebration of life. Um, years ago, I, I heard uh, a guy who heard me preaching uh, called me a few days later and asked me if I would consider being a life insurance salesman. I had no idea if this is a good sign or a bad sign. Uh, he hears me preach and says, you should sell insurance. Uh, all right. But it's kind of a funny phrase, really, if you think about life insurance. And I get it. Allstate is not claiming that they're going to prevent you from dying. Uh, but, but insurance itself, I mean, literally by definition, is a way of guaranteeing protection or safety. But we know that, that insurance, uh, this kind of insurance, it can't offer that, right? Like, even when I die and my wife and children are able to cash in on my enormous uh, life insurance policy, uh, one day they're going to die as well. Uh, we know that this is certain for us, right? Death, taxes, and the popularity of Taylor Swift. These just seem to be three things that are going to continue until Jesus comes back. Um, Roman, uh, Hebrews 9 says it this way, each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's a sobering reality. The death isn't just possible, it's certain. Like, unless Jesus comes back, each of us will dance with death, and, and death will win. But in today's passage, there's this ancient carpenter from Nazareth who claims, he makes the audacious claim that he can defeat death. And I love the way this lined up. Here we are on New Year's Eve as we anticipate a new start, a new year, a new resolutions that are going to fail in like four and a half days. You know what I'm talking about. But we are also baptizing nine people as a symbol of a new beginning in their lives. Nine people who have claimed that they know a guy who has truly, actually insured life for them, but not as a salesman, right? Uh, he freely offered this to them. In our next story in John, it perfectly connects his New Year's Day baptisms with Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it's a sneak peek into the life insurance that Jesus, and only Jesus, can offer to our world. Let's look at John 11 this morning. And the first thing we want to look at in this text is the reason for Lazarus' death. Now, uh, if you have your Bibles, John 11, I'm going to look at the first three verses here. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one uh, who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And that's actually, we're going to see that in next chapter in John 12. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. Notice here, the one you love. We know that from the text, that Jesus is close, personal friends with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And so you imagine, you imagine getting that call, getting that text message that one of your closest friends or family members is sick. And maybe for you, this isn't a hypothetical. For many of us, this, this, is, this has happened, right? And not just a cold or a cough, but they're dying. And your world, in that moment, it stops spinning. What are, you, what are you thinking in that moment? What are you feeling in that moment? What do you do in that moment? And we see here how Jesus responds when he gets this kind of message of a close friend dying. Verse 4, he says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says, this will not end in death. But spoiler alert, right? We know, if you've read this story before, Lazarus dies. So is Jesus lying here? 
safe answer to that question is normally no, right? What we see in this beautiful story is that death is not the ultimate end for Lazarus. He will die, but it is not his ultimate end. And this is thick with meaning for us. Jesus says here that ultimately this was for the glory of God. Now, this moment, like all moments, is for the glory of God. West, the Westminster Confession, a creed shared throughout church history, says here, here's the reason that you and I exist. It says the chief end of man, our purpose as humans, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if this is the purpose of our lives, to glorify God, we, we should know what is the glory of God, if, if that's our end. Well, let's sum it up this way. God's glory is his majesty made visible. It's his majesty made visible. Or I like how John Piper says it. It's God's holy perfection going public. If you were to, if you were to use this illustration of, a, of a, the sun, the sun itself it reveal, is, is, um, represents who God is. That God is holy. He is majestic. He is beautiful and good. And then the, the sun beams are what reveal, show us who he is so we can see it. That's why Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is a way we see God's majesty. His word is a way written to us that we can see, behold, the majesty of God. And it says the reason that you and I breathe, the reason that we exist, and therefore the best thing for us is to stand in the light of his son, to bask in the glory of who our God is. So how is God's majesty made visible in this story? How can we see it? Jesus continues. It's for the glory of God. And he finishes verse 4 by saying, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so specifically, we are going to see Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, in this event. And we know, what do we celebrate this time of year? You want to see God the clearest, most beautiful self-expression of God is what we just celebrated on Monday. When we sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus is showing himself with God with skin on to the people. Continues in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Mary, her sister, and Lazarus. But then there's a weird connection here. He loved them, verse 5, verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick... He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now you might say, wait a second. I don't, you might be as confused as Jackie Chan is here. That what, if you love them, that's not how the verse ends, right? The verse is supposed to say he loved them, so he showed up just in the nick of time and saved the day. That's how the Bible is supposed to go, right? Now, chapter 10, it's interesting. It tells us that Jesus himself right now is on the other side of the Jordan River confusingly, in another town called Bethany. But he, it, it says that it would, have been, it would have been probably a one to two day journey at least for him to get from that Bethany to where Lazarus was. So when he gets there, John's going to tell us Lazarus has been dead for four days, which means had Jesus even left immediately, Lazarus would have been dead anyway. But what do we know? Jesus, the son of God, he could have prevented this death had he wanted to, Right? And so this leaves us with a hard, but I, I think necessary truth, that what matters more than preventing physical death is seeing 
and savoring our God for who he is. God knew it was worth it to create humans, even though he knew that that would mean sin and death being tasted by us. That God knew it was worth it to let Lazarus die because he knew there was something more important here going on than preventing Lazarus' death. That, that God knew it was worth it for his own son to die because God would never call us into something that he wouldn't be willing to do himself. Or as Jesus says, look at verses 14 and 15. He, he told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And this is hard. I'm glad. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. But let's go to him. Let's go to him. He, he says the reason here, the reason for Lazarus' death is to see the, the glory of God revealed, to see God's majesty and goodness and beauty visible in Jesus. And God knew there was something that the people of Bethany then and in Soldatna today needed to see about Jesus so that you may believe something we need to trust about Jesus, something worth allowing Lazarus to die for. Those are high stakes, so we better pay attention to this. Now, what specifically needed to be seen about Jesus? This is the next part of our story. Number two, the revealing of our resurrection and our life. It was fun this Christmas to watch our now 21-month-old daughter, Lucy, become a lot more interactive with Christmas. Last year, she was an adorable sack of potatoes, but a sack nonetheless, right? So this year, man, watching her dump her little Sesame Street guys out of her uh, stocking, and she knows them by name now. It's Emmo and Abby and Coco, which is now Cookie Monster. And so, but I thought, That's, this, is, this is a fantastic opportunity here to give my child some independent play right? That she'll play with these toys, and then I'll get to go get some stuff done, lucy at last. That was very naive of me, right? She is my daughter through and through, and she wants to play with her guys on top of me, right? And I, I think that she's distracted with her guys, and I start creeping away, and she snaps her head around like, hey, chump, where do you think you're going, right? <laughs> you're going to get to hold this little magical pink fairy Abby, and she's going to be kissing my Elmo for a long it's, it's a weird thing, but, but and, I, and of course, I love every minute of it, but then there's that, also that part of you that wants to, you know, there's, a, there's a tension. But Lucy understands, right, even at this age, that the event of Christmas, opening these presents, the gifts that she's receiving, they're only really valuable. She only desires them in the presence of the giver, of the, of the one who gave them to her, her father. And her mother had a little bit to do with that as well, right? But I, I hear a similar truth echoed here in Jesus' interaction with Martha. Pick it up in verse 20. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, Martha believes in, in, the, in the future resurrection of the dead. She, she states that here, and she believes that's going to include her brother Lazarus. But Jesus has a different point to make. Look at what he says to her in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is his fifth of seven I am statements he's going to make in the Gospel of John. Uh, we've already seen him say, I am the bread, the light, the gate, the good shepherd, the gate uh, itself. And then, and then two, a couple more 
that we'll see coming up. But notice carefully, Jesus didn't say, I resurrect. He didn't say, I give life. What did he say? I am the resurrection. And I am the life. Martha trusts Jesus, even in light of her brother's death. But what I think Jesus is leading Martha to, he's leading her from an abstract belief in an event that's going to take place on the last day to a personalized belief in him, in the one who alone can provide that life. You see, this is what Lucy was wanting to play with her gifts in my lap. She understood that it was the presence of the one who presented the presence that was the gift. That Jesus is showing that the gift is the giver itself, himself. Jesus doesn't just want to give us good things. Like, he himself is the ultimate good thing. And, and, and we see this in all of the I am statements. Jesus doesn't just say, man, I, I want to give you bread. He says, I am the bread. Feast on me. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I enable you to see, but I'm also the, the most valuable thing that you can see. And he says, I am both the gate and the shepherd that leads you through the gate and what you get to behold when you enter that gate. And here Jesus is saying, I am the process of raising you from death to life. I am the resurrection and I'm what you're being raised to. Like I am the life. Jesus truly is our all in all. And he goes on in in verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asks Martha, do you believe this? He says, Lazarus, yeah, he's going to die, but he's also going to live. Now, I'm no biologist, but how does that work? That feels like a contradiction. Jesus is going to say later that eternal life is not just living without end. He defines it. In, in my favorite way, my favorite definition of, of life in the Bible, he's going to say in a few chapters from here, he says, this is eternal life. Here's what life, not living forever. He says, that, that they may know you, he's praying to his father, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And this know here is not just informational. This is intimacy. This is relationship. He says, eternal life is knowing, being an intimate oneness with the Father and with his Son and his Spirit. It's not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. Jesus is saying, I have come to make life available on both sides of the grave. To see me, to know me, is to live. Jesus knows that, man, we need to see that without him, life isn't worth living. Like, by definition, death means separation. And so life is to be with our God. Death is to be separated from him. And so more important than preventing our physical death is giving us eternal life, which is about a person, not just an event. Jesus didn't come here just to make our life go better with us still in the middle of it. Jesus wants to be the center of our lives, which is simultaneously the best thing for us. The best thing for me is to stop living in a Justin-centric universe and to start living in a Jesus-centric one because that's reality. Like he is the center of the universe and, and he's the rightful, the best center of the universe. And to, so for, for, 
us to live in, to bask in the light of who Jesus is, is also our own greatest good. And here we see Martha stepping into that light by faith. She says in verse 27, yes, Lord. When he asks her, do you believe in this? Do you believe in me? He says, she says, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Now, that's well and good, but death is still horrible. Is Jesus just callously using Lazarus as like an object lesson here? The next truth we see about our Lord is that he shares in the sorrow of our death. Notice Jesus' interaction with Mary is very different from his interaction with Martha. Hear his emotion coming out. We pick it up in, in verse 32. As soon as Mary came to Jesus where, where he was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the, Jew, the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. Some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind, eye, blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? The question we wrestled with earlier. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So you hear here he, his emotion all over this interaction with Mary and those around her. Notice in verse 33, it says that he was deeply moved. Now, this deeply moved isn't just like weepy. This is not like when, when I get Jill flowers and she's just deeply moved. Right? That's our... That's our relationship. Uh, no, it's, it's actually um, more of a, a, Jesus is angry. This word, uh, actually in the Greek, it literally meant the snorting of a horse, right? It's not the reaction that Jill usually gives when I give her flowers, praise the Lord. It actually meant, it meant anger, outrage, an emotional indignation. Like Jesus is ticked here, is really what's, what's probably going on. Now what's he angry at? Is Jesus just not like it when other people cry? Does that just like put him off? I used to be my little sister when we were young, and we'd be watching a movie, and my mom started crying. She'd look over and go, why are you crying? Stop crying, right? Just ruin the mood, Janelle. Um, he's not just mad at the people being weepy. I think, I think most likely, I mean, Jesus moved by their grief. I think he's angry at sin. I think he's angry at, at the sickness and death of this world, he, he is looking Satan eyeball to eyeball in the, in the full manifestation of the, the, the havoc that sin wreaks with death and sorrow in our world. And he's angry about it. Jesus is angry precisely because he loves. You see, love and anger are not incompatible. They actually go hand in hand. Like, if Jill was to cheat on me, I wouldn't be indifferent. That's not love. Like, I want Jill's faithfulness, and she wants mine, to honor the covenant that we've made to one another for our best, Right? And so if that happens, I'm going Liam Neeson on whoever it is, that, that punk out there in the name of Jesus, right? I'm, I'm coming after him. Jesus is angry, listen, because he wants their best. He wants their at-oneness with the Father and with him. And he's angry at the sin and the death that's, that's dividing. He wants his sheep back. And then we know the famous short verse, Jesus Wept. Now the others around, are, are the word there is they're wailing openly. This for Jesus is silent tears are running down his cheeks. Jesus is not just angry, he's sad. Jesus knows Lazarus is coming back soon, right? Like he knows what he's about to do. So why is he sad? 
right? Like, have you ever thought, I've wrestled with that? Well, think about it this way. What if I came up to you and said, hey, I'm going to cut off your arm. Why are you so upset? I'm going to put it right back on. <laughs> like, there's still a painful separation that's going to happen, right? Like, Jesus is mourning what is not natural, and the corruption of sin and death that's happening to his friend and that's affecting the people around him, even if it's temporary. And man, hallelujah, what a savior. That we have a sympathetic high priest who came to weep with us and to walk with us, which was only truly and ultimately possible, but because he became like one of us. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to pre prevent us from physically dying, like we said, and, and he's not going to immediately fix all of our problems. But Emmanuel means God is with us. We serve a Christ who came to be with us and to weep with us. And I think we need to learn from Jesus the art of lament, that sometimes what is simply to be done is just to be sad at what we see going on. There's a lady who was in a room uh, with a, a friend of hers who was grieving deeply. And there was a lot of other people there, uh, counselors and some pastors and people who could say some like smart Bible stuff. And she just felt very intimidated by that. And she's like, I have nothing to say. And all she could do is just cry. Just be with her friend and cry. And afterward, her friend came back to her and said, thank you so much for being there. And she said, I didn't even say anything. And she was acknowledging that, that even perhaps those tears, that withness and weeping spoke louder than any of the biblical words that were shared. Now, notice Mary and Martha here make the exact same statement, like almost word for word. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They said the same thing to Jesus, but notice that he responds in two very different ways. In Myers-Briggs definitions, we've got thinkers and feelers, right? Um, so where are my thinkers at in the room? Where are my thinkers? Yeah, in a crisis, you are whipping out charts and lists and like, we're going to figure this thing out. Right, and then where are my weepers? At? Oops, there they are. Where are my weepers at? Where am I? You can. It's a safe place. Yeah, in a crisis, you just need a Kleenex and a hug. Right, like that's that's we're different. Right, but Mary's a thinker, and so Jesus talks it out with her. He explains who he is and what's going on. When Mary comes in with the same words, he simply sits with her and weeps with her. And I've grieved with people who need to talk it out, and sometimes for hours and hours. I've sat with other people grieving who just simply need to cry it out. Put your arm around them and to cry with them and pass the Kleenex. People who need to be all alone and people who don't want to be alone for a second. And the beauty of our God is that he knows each one of us. And he knows where we're at. He knows how to meet us where we're at. I love, Jesus himself walked out what Paul called us to in Thessalonians. He said, brothers and sisters, we urge you, and here's how we approach different people in different places. Warn those who are lazy. There's a time to get up in someone's face and say, get a job, fool, right? There's, but also, he says, encourage the timid. You don't get in the face of the timid. You give them courage. Take tender care of those who are weak and be patient with everybody. Jesus, Paul says, is wisdom from God. He is wisdom incarnate, literally. And he knows when to get in our face and he knows when to lift up our chin. May we learn from the wisest teacher who ever lived, go and do likewise with the people around us. Okay, so Jesus is mad about Lazarus. He's sad about Lazarus. But that doesn't mean a lot if he can't do anything about it. That's what we see in our final point. Jesus shows the sign of his life. So Mary, 
excuse me, Martha, verse 39, uh, Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, if, uh, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. This is where the KJV really comes in here. She says, Lord, he stinketh, <laughs> right? Mar Martha's still on the struggle bus here, but to believe. Lord, he's dead. Why are you opening the tomb? He's going to stink. The Jews believed that the soul um, actually loitered around the body for three days. So, like, there was a possibility that they could come back. But the fourth day, it was game over. And, and Jesus is waiting, I think, until the fourth day to show this is not CPR. That, that he's not, in the, in the words of, of Billy Crystal, he, there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead, right? Mostly dead, slightly alive. All dead, all you can do is root for loose change in their pockets. Um, thanks, Billy. But Jesus here is saying, I'm not going to resuscitate Lazarus. I am going to resurrect him. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? They're about to behold the majesty of our God in what Jesus is going to do. Verse 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so they may believe that you've sent me. After this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Augustine wondered that maybe had Jesus not specified the name Lazarus, that a bunch of people would have come running out of the grave. <laughs> Guy comes out, oh, Lazarus. I'm Lazarus. Thought I heard Lazarus. I'll wait my turn, right? Verse 44, the dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Why? Because he's alive. Now you might say, well, great. Lazarus got to come back to life. My loved one didn't. Like, so yeah, this is a great story for them. Lazarus gets to come back to life. His sisters get him back. Jesus gets him back. But what about my loved one that, that didn't come back, that isn't coming back? But think about this for a minute. Imagine that you're Lazarus. If you die, and, and seeing the evidence that most likely Lazarus has placed his faith in his friend Jesus, he would now be free from the presence of sin and death in a mortal body. He would be in the presence of his father. And I'd imagine him up there swapping jokes with Moses and Elijah. And all of a sudden he feels this tug. And he's coming back down to earth. And he has to, he has to go live in this world of sin and death again. And then physically die again. Is he really the lucky one in this situation? Now, I'm not minimizing. We, we grieve for the ones we've lost. And to acknowledge, man, if our loved one wasn't a believer, we don't have this hope. That's, that's where we go back to Jesus' teaching and modeling here of there's a place just for lament and for grief and to trust the sovereignty and goodness of our God. But remember Jesus' words. He said, this sickness won't end in death. Now, here's the irony. It didn't end in death for Lazarus. It does ultimately end in death for Jesus. And Jesus said, the sickness isn't going to end in death. It's for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. 
How is Jesus going to be glorified through this event? Now, we're going to see in the moment, it's not ultimately a thunderous applause for Jesus, and they're like body surfing Jesus through the crowd, but ultimately, this is going to end in Jesus' own death. What we're going to see next week is that Jesus' quest to bring his dead friend back to life leads to the Jewish leader's ultimate decision to kill him. In other words, Lazarus' life is given in exchange, or Jesus' life is given in exchange for Lazarus's. But Jesus' life doesn't end in death either, does it? It's going to end in resurrection glory. Both Jesus and Lazarus die, but this isn't the end of their stories, and brothers and sisters, it's not the end of ours either. If we believe that Jesus is our resurrection and life, our hope, our hope for those who are, are holding on to Jesus is not the prevention of the grave. Hebrews 9 says it's, gonna, it's destined for us to die. Our hope is in life after the grave. Our hope is beyond the grave itself. And what's beautiful here is that Jesus' resurrection is going to be far superior to the resurrection we see in Lazarus here. Lazarus still has the zombie strips all around him. He has to have taken off of him. When Jesus raises, we just find it all folded up OCD style on the bench. That Lazarus is going to have to die again in the, back into a mortal body. Jesus will never die again in his new resurrection body. Jesus, Lazarus' re resurrection is a pale anticipation. It's a whisper and a shadow of those who will hear Jesus' shout on the final day and participate in his glorious resurrection. Not back to a mortal body like Lazarus's but raised to a new immortal body like Jesus's. That Paul says is like comparing a seed to, a, to an oak tree. You can't compare the two. I don't know what the new body's going to be like. I don't know how it'll get you much better than this. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was dumb. Where do we find our story? Where do we find ourselves in the story? The great exchange is, is at play here. Jesus' Jesus's life is given in exchange for Lazarus's life. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, knowing full well this is going to lead to his own death. And then Jesus dies, knowing full well that's going to lead to Lazarus' resurrection. And just like the confession of the four men that we saw get baptized earlier today, the exchange is Jesus' sinless life given for our sinful life. You know, it was a sweet thing baptizing my brother Eric and had the privilege of being in a discipleship relationship with him for the last few years and one of the greatest testimonies that I've had up close and personal to the resurrection life of Jesus seen in the life of another and to watch Jesus rescue Eric out of the old way of living thoughts patterns and behaviors to a whole new life and to see in him developing new desires New, new behaviors, a new community. Like, Eric just loves being with his siblings in Christ, seeing him share his testimony in ways and places that he would have never imagined before, to intentionally love the teens in our youth group and bring a few of them into his painting business to see an intentional relationship grow there and discipling others. And Eric would be the first to tell you he's far from perfect, right? He's got this whole thing on goat cheese. Talk to him about it if, you, if you've got 20 minutes. Um, God's going to work that out. Like, but he's living a new life, and I'm watching him fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. Eric's baptism, the baptism of the, the nine today, is a beautiful symbol of our new reality in Christ. 
we said the word baptize means to place into. They were placed into the water today. But in the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew culture and world, the, the water symbolized death and chaos. And so when they're placed into the water, it's symbolically being placed into and through the waters of death out to newness of life. This is the pattern we see in scripture that Noah's ark was a symbol of salvation through the floodwaters of death to new land, to new life, that the people of Israel walked through the Dead Sea out to the other side, a new life as God's people in his promised land. Now you might ask, for each of us placed into Christ, what died? What, what death had to occur? And Romans 6 paints such a beautiful uh, picture of this. Paul says, for we died. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Water, being placed into the water is a symbol of us being placed into Jesus. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. We know that our old sinful selves, this is what was crucified, our old us, the old nature, we were crucified with Christ. Why? So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, Paul says, we know, and here's the, here's the best part, that we'll live with him. We are sure of this. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. You need evidence? Look at the empty tomb. And he will never die again, unlike Lazarus. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the what? The glory of God. We said earlier that God, that you would see the beauty of God in the person of Jesus. This is his destiny. And brothers and sisters, when we're placed into him, it becomes ours as well. Verse 11, he says, so, so here, here, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God with Christ Jesus. Come on, that's a gospel. That's a good news. And there's, a, there's an already not yet aspect of Jesus' resurrection and his life, like, there's a, there's a reality for us today and a reality that's yet to come. See, there's a not yet in our resurrection with Jesus. There's a, there's a day coming when we will be physically resurrected after we die. That we, in, in that moment, we'll be free from the presence of sin and free in the physical presence of Jesus. What a day that will be. But there's an already aspect to our resurrection life as well. That the moment we place our faith in Jesus, the moment we place our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually resurrected. We are free from the power of sin, is what Paul said. That our old way, our old way of living, it, we're free from its power. And we can now live a new life in Christ right now. We don't have to live any longer controlled by addiction, by anger, by anxiety, by bitterness by living that life of bondage to a me-centered universe, we can now live a life of love, a life of joy and peace centered around the person of Jesus. Now, why do we have to die in a different way? We can't just put, a old, we can't put makeup on the old nature. A little bit of lipstick and mascara is not, it's not just some behavior modification. The old way had to die. We had to be crucified in order to receive new life. But now, in Christ, we are free to bask in the glory of God, seen in the person of Jesus. And that's what I want for each of you in this room today. That like the nine that we're baptizing this morning, 
to follow Jesus, blazing this trail in this new way of life. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is no longer in that tomb. We thank you that he is alive now and forever. And my prayer is that you would encourage the believers in this room today, remind them, or maybe for some of the first times they're hearing some of these truths of what we have in Jesus, that you would embolden them by that, that you would buoy their hearts by the freedom from sin and to God that they have in Christ Jesus today. And to long for his, or his return, to be purified by that longing. Pray also for the unbeliever in this room today, that as we sang, that they would hear you call their name. And they would come running out of that grave. And to join us in the light and life of a Jesus-centric universe. It's in his risen name that all God's people said.